Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Imagine that you are a small church that finds itself on the wrong end of popular opinion. People find your beliefs ridiculous, beliefs that don't make sense with the wider culture and how everyone else understands the world. But then imagine that what had been at first annoying and kind of funny starts to be seen as a problem. Your small church doesn't just seem stupid, it's now also in the way of progress. And beliefs and traditions that were frustrating at first are now harmful to society. And so this small church begins to be threatened. Its neighbors begin bullying and intimidating. The local government starts putting pressure to demean and separate this church. And under this pressure, the church begins to crack. People start worrying about themselves and their families, and they begin to isolate. Other voices within the church begin to call for protection and for retaliation. Uh, Others sidestep their beliefs, some just up and run. And this small church that was once unified creeps closer and closer to disarray and the collective mindset of this church's fear. I am, of course, talking about the ancient church of Philippi. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to this church that is part of the Bible. And when he first came through that region uh, with his companion Silas, he found himself in a spot of trouble. After meeting a woman named Lydia and introducing her and her household to Jesus, Paul was hounded by a demon and a slave girl. And when he cast the demon out, her masters, who made money off the demon, brought accusations against Paul, and the magistrates had him and Silas both beaten and thrown in jail. During the night, though, while they were worshiping God, there was an earthquake that broke the locks to the doors, and the jailer, supposing a mass escape, was about to kill himself in dishonor when Paul stops him. And through that night, he ends up saving both the jailer and his household. Finding uh, no accusation against them, though, the next day, Paul and Silas are released, and they leave the households of Lydia and this jailer as the small church in Philippi. Since then, Paul's relationship with this small church has continued to grow, both in affection as well as in their participation in his ministry. But now, Paul, ironically again in prison, begins to hear troubling news, that this community of Christians is being intimidated by the Roman Philippians, and the unity and the love that the church had cherished is beginning to crack. Now, as the pressure mounts, it seems that these Philippians, or the Philippian church, is giving away to self-interest and fear in particular. The call of their neighbors and of the local government is to live as Romans, to follow Roman ways, and to worship Roman gods. And so not wanting to suffer, this church begins to question the calling of Jesus. And so in this letter, after Paul reminds the church of his continued affection and his love for them and assuring them that his own suffering in prison is furthering the work of Jesus, he reminds them of their true identity as citizens of heaven. As men and women who belong to Jesus, they need to be rooted in the spirit and strive together for the gospel and not be afraid of their opponents. After all, Paul tells them, it has been graciously given to us not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for him, just as Paul himself was doing. 
And because they are citizens living in this foreign land, they must adopt the mindset of heaven, a mindset that is key to helping them live well amidst the trouble and the pressure that they are facing. And what they find, and what we find as well, is that Jesus changes our mindset, as in the way in which we approach life together here on earth. So we're going to jump into this letter, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, Paul begins by reminding them of truths that they have known and experienced. And in English, quick side nerd note, all of these ifs, so if there's any encouragement, if there's any in love, well, it makes it seem like, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But actually, when Paul wrote it, they tell you whether that statement is true or false. They don't like the uncertainty. And so if you were one of these Philippian Christians reading this letter, it would come across more like, if you have any encouragement in Jesus, and you absolutely do, if there is any comfort from God's love, and oh, yes, there is, if there's any common sharing in the spirit, which is so very true, uh, if there's any tenderness and compassion, probably between Paul and the church, which of course there is, given their history, then based on all these true things, then fill up my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, all these things... uh, correspond to unity. And if you notice, Paul keeps emphasizing this shared mindset. It's the bookends, both before and after. And from here on out, Paul is actually going to describe to us what this mindset is that is so important to being courageous amidst persecution, maintaining unity, and living as a worthy citizen of heaven. So what is the mindset that we are supposed to have? Verses three and four. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, selfish ambition is how Paul earlier describes in this letter people who are preaching Jesus because they think that it will make Paul's life in prison worse, which is really weird logic. Uh, But they're looking out for their own gains, their own advantages, their competition and rivalry with Paul. And then this uh, vain conceit thing, which I don't know why this delights me, but literally the word means empty glory, which is just evocative. Anyway, it refers to people who seek their own honor but don't have the basis for it. Right? They think more highly of themselves than they should. One commentator on Philippians, Gordon Fee, writes that selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness. It's where what we value and how we behave become sourced in self-interest and self-importance at the expense of others. And this causes us to value people by comparison, especially in a society that is obsessed with having a voice and importance. It leads us to oppress and hurt others for our own advantage. Selfish ambition and vain conceit create this cocktail where those who are powerful use others and those without honor grasp for power for their own benefit. Now, in contrast to both of these things, however, Paul tells us to be humble, which considers others and their needs as more important than our own. Now, I've never really thought about this before, but humility is actually something that's uniquely Christian. And while we might not like it today, 
We still probably acknowledge it as a virtue because Western civilization has been steeped in Christian thought for 2,000 years. But within Roman society, humility was actually seen as a defect. Power, pride, and privilege, those were traits to seek, not humility, because to be humble meant that you were weak or you were soft or you were foolish. And the world was ruled by the powerful, and they bent the world to their own advantage. And that was the way it was supposed to go. So seek to become powerful. And yet amidst such a world, Paul tells this beleaguered church, facing persecution, being intimidated, to pursue humility. Now, Paul isn't talking about self-hatred or having a lack of confidence or low self-esteem or even falsely considering others as better than yourself, which we'll talk about in a bit. What he is talking about is our care for others and their needs. That humility puts the care of others before its own. Now, I think it would make complete sense for the believers of Philippi to look around at the struggles that they're facing and kind of just turtle, right? They protect their own interests, they look after themselves, and they leave others to fend on their own. Again, that is normal. That is normal unless Jesus is your Lord instead of Caesar. Because the reason that our minds are supposed to be changed, to be defined by humility, is because humility is precisely the mindset of Jesus. Picking back up in Philippians 2, verse 5. It says, In your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now one of the things that's interesting here is that Paul shows us that Jesus demonstrates humility both as God and as man. So first, as God. Jesus doesn't use his power or position to benefit himself. But instead, he makes himself nothing. Paul uses this language of grasping and releasing here. So although Jesus is God, he did not consider it as an opportunity to seize things for himself. So some translations talk about to be grasped. But instead, he makes himself nothing, or literally he empties himself. Instead of seizing, he pours out. Jesus spent himself and in his divinity demonstrated the opposite of selfish ambition and vain conceit, though he had every right to lord over us as lord. But instead, he does the opposite. He becomes a servant, a human for us, something truly inconceivable, stupid even when we consider what is truly natural to us. Now, as much as we look at baby Jesus in December as something beautiful and holy, and baby Jesus is beautiful and he's holy, for the Son of God who is perfect in power and glory, who has always been in this perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit, through whom all things have been made to become physical, human, helpless, a baby, right? who had to have the blood and muck of birth wiped off of him, who comes into this world crying, and he's born to two peasants in a little town of a conquered country of no significance, that is a humiliation we cannot fathom. 
given who Jesus is, when we look at the manger, part of us should be horrified. And yet that is not the extent of Jesus' humility because simply becoming human wasn't enough. Because after emptying himself out by becoming human, he then humbles himself further by obeying the Father and dying. So it's not as though he gets to show up as human and then act important. Instead, he's given the mission to die. And it's not just any death that he takes. It is the excruciating, humiliating death on a cross as a condemned criminal who's been tortured and displayed bloodied and naked for people to see and laugh at. And yet even then, through all of this, Jesus continued to humble himself, both in his life and his death, because he waits to be exalted by the Father, not claiming honor as his right or his due, but receiving it from the Father as the Father's reward. And so that is the humility that Jesus demonstrates for us to follow and the mindset that we are supposed to adopt. An old dead Christian uh, that I've been spending some time with is Andrew Murray, who was a pastor in South Africa in the 19th century. And he has this excellent little book simply called Humility, which you could read it in the afternoon if you want to. But Andrew Murray says this about Jesus. He says, it is important that we know who Christ is, especially the chief characteristic that is the root and essence of his character as our redeemer. There can be what, uh, but one answer. It is his humility. What is the incarnation but his heavenly humility, his emptying himself and becoming man? What is his life on earth but humility, his taking the form of a servant? And what is his atonement but humility? He humbled himself and became obedient to death. And what is his ascension and his glory but humility exalted to the throne and crowned with glory? He humbled himself, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. In heaven where he was one with the Father, in his birth, his life, and his death on earth, his return to the right hand of the Father, it is all humility. So in light of all this, right, what, is this what does it mean for us? Well, first, humility is really, really important. So Paul commands it, Jesus lives it, and if we dig but just a little in the scriptures, we find it pretty much everywhere. So for example, just to dabble in the Old Testament, Isaiah 66 says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord? But these are the ones I will look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Proverbs 3. He mocks proud mockers but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. And this last one, Jesus himself references a couple times, and it's also picked up by New Testament authors as well. Uh, James 4, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, all of you close your, uh, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So at the very least, again, we should recognize humility is really, really important. It's found throughout the Bible as the way to God. Jesus demonstrates it both as God and man. And of course, the New Testament authors command it. So what is it then? 
Now, throughout my own journey, I think I've swung between two extremes. And ironically, I think both of them are on the same spectrum of pride. The first extreme is that humility, just when you think about it, doesn't really, really make sense. Because how am I supposed to honestly consider myself as, or consider others as better than myself? It becomes impractical to ignore my own needs and care for others. Plus, if I do so, then who is going to care for me? And so we convince ourselves that as long as we aren't overly arrogant, then we're fine. And we shuffle humility off into the drawer where we stick most of Jesus' teachings that don't make sense, like loving our enemies, forgiving others, turning the other cheek, and so forth. So that's the first extreme. The second extreme, and by far the one I've most been stuck with, is that humility is really about hating yourself. Because the reason that we can consider others as more important and their needs above our own is because we have no importance, right? We're failures or losers or jokes that can't be loved, can't be valued, can't do anything right. And so humility goes way beyond a lack of confidence or low self-esteem. It's actually a deep-rooted shame of who we are, what we've done, or what others have done to us. Now, in response to both of those extremes, if Jesus is the example of humility, what's interesting is we don't find any of that. Right? Though Jesus is humiliated by others, particularly the cross, he's not ashamed of himself. He doesn't lack confidence. He doesn't hate himself. And yet he still is able to love others perfectly, which is weird. But Jesus also demonstrates actual humility. And so it's not just this idea that we admire, but it's something that we're actually supposed to live just as Jesus did. So again, what is it? Now, in Philippians, we know that it's contrasted with selfish ambition and vain conceit, and that means placing the care of others above ourselves, and then we're given the example of Jesus. So tying it all together, Angie Murray puts it this way um, in the 18th century, uh, or sorry, 19th century. He says, humility is simply acknowledging the truth of our position as creature and yielding to God his place. So to bring that into the 21st century, humility is letting God be God and us be human. Humility is letting God be God and us be human. Now, there are at least two things to this. And the first has to do with position. Uh, To quote the priest from the film Rudy, uh, two things I know, there is a God and I am not he. So humility recognizes that I'm actually not the one in charge. I'm not more more important than everyone else. I don't get to decide what is right and wrong. God does, and I follow. Because humility sees the reality of God as Lord and Master and us as creatures. And this actually must be the foundation for our relationship with God. And that's why the prophets tell us that he's actually drawn to the humble and the contrite. He's drawn to them because they let him be what he is. And they relate with him as he deserves. And so in all reality, we actually cannot truly be with God without humility because without humility, we ignore what God is and the consequences for that are actually great. Andrew Murray again says, the life of those who are saved, the saints, must bear this stamp of deliverance from sin and full restoration to their original state. Their whole relationship to God and to man marked by an all-pervading humility. Without humility... There can be no true abiding in God's presence or experience of his favor or the power of his spirit. With this, no abiding faith or love or joy or strength. Humility is the only soil in which virtue takes root. 
a lack of humility is the explanation of every defect and failure. Humility is not so much a virtue along with the others, but is the root of all, because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. So that's the first part of humility. Humility is letting God be what he is, as in he alone is Lord and creator. Now there's also a second part to letting God be God. For most of my life, and certainly most of my adult life, I have struggled with depression and shame through failures, mistakes, losses, things done or said to me. And in that shame, I tell myself that I cannot be loved unless I prove myself worthy of that love. And so I have tended to read the Bible with footnotes. So just a few of the big passages, right? John 3, uh, for God so loved the world, footnote, except for sky. First uh, John 4, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, except, or sorry, footnote, except for sky. Uh, Galatians 5, in freedom, Christ has set you free. Footnote, except for Sky, who has to free himself and demonstrate that he alone is worthy to be saved by God. And you get the point. Sometime during my 20s, I was uh, listening to a summer, summary of Martin Luther's work from the 16th century, as normal people do. And the speaker was summing up Martin Luther's view on faith. And this is what he said Luther was saying. He said, faith is taking God's word seriously. Because to ignore God's words is to essentially call him a liar. Now, I don't have a great memory, but this one actually stands out. I was on my way to jog in the park across from the street from my parents' house. And yes, I listen to Bible and theology lectures when I work out because they really get the blood pumping. And I was walking on the gravel that was beside the road. And when I heard this, I stopped. And there was this final crunch of gravel. And with that crunch of gravel, my mind exploded. Because I realized that I actually wasn't letting God be God. Right? I wasn't taking him seriously. I was editing his promises and changing his character as though I had the power and the right to do so. I wasn't letting Jesus be the incarnation of God's love and grace towards me. I had no problem with him doing that for other people, but not me. So I was ignoring God's heart and changing it to fit the feelings of self-hatred and shame within my own heart. And although I claimed to follow Jesus deep down, I wasn't letting him be who he is. Because humility must also mean letting God be who he is, as in his heart and his character and what he wants and how he feels, particularly about me. And so we have to, be, we have to let him be who he is along with what he is. So humility is important. It's letting God be God. It's letting him be Lord and it's accepting his character. And connected to that second one is another thing we learn about humility. And it's something that is actually right in front of us, but I think our eyes keep missing it because it actually sounds so ridiculous. Because the other thing we learn about humility is that God is humble. Now, that at least blows my mind because the all-powerful, all-knowing God somehow to his core, his very being is humble, that we are actually called to be humble because he himself is. Now remember, Jesus doesn't just demonstrate humility once he's human. 
though equal with God, he chooses to become nothing for us so that as a human, he can die for us and bring us to God. That in Jesus and in everything he does, we discover the radical, nonsensical character of God. And what we particularly find is that God is not this grasping being full of his own importance who makes demands to satisfy his own capricious whims. That he has forever, always, only been self-giving, loving, and humble. That in eternity past, we see this with his relationship with the Son and the Spirit, and the beginning of creation is the overflow of his love, that in his history with humanity and the sending of his Son to die for us as a human and the giving of his Spirit to live in those humans, and also the promise to one day bring us back to him. What we discover over and over again is that God is humble. Murray puts it this way through Jesus. He says, Christ is the expression of the humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. As the love and condescension of God makes him the benefactor and helper and servant of all, so Jesus of necessity was the incarnate humility. And so he is still in the midst of the throne, the meek and lowly Lamb of God. So then, how do we follow the humility of Jesus? Here's just four things I thought of, and I'm sure there is a multitude more. First, attend to Jesus, right? Like a servant who's always listening for the voice of their master and is ready to be there. Give God your time and attention. He is Lord, and he deserves at the very least that. And the irony is, is that in a world obsessed with power and platforms and importance, actually taking time to stop and simply be with Jesus actually gives us true rest. And Jesus himself says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So make time, maybe just a few minutes each day, to talk with him or journal with him or be silent before him or read his words alongside him or to sing to him. I think more than ever, giving our time and attention is a necessary act of humbling ourselves. Second, and this sounds odd, but let God love you. Don't add footnotes to the Bible explaining how you are exempt from his love or grace. We do not get to tell God what he wants or how he feels or to reinterpret Jesus' death and resurrection. We quoted 1 Peter 5 earlier, but at the end of that passage, Peter actually tells us what it looks like to humble ourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Remember, humility is not just submitting to God's authority, but also submitting to his heart. So thank God for loving you, for adopting you as his child, for wanting to be with you, for being within you as you continue to grow and, yes, struggle against sin, but to become more like him. Third, take your eyes off yourself and look to the needs of others, as Paul tells us to do and as he shows that Jesus himself did. Now here's where we perhaps for the first time realize that humility is actually truly terrifying. 
Because the world tells us that if we do not look after ourselves, then we're going to be hurt and abandoned. But if humility is our mindset, then we should already recognize two important things. First, we're completely dependent on Jesus. And two, we are completely and always loved. And so we are actually free to follow Jesus and caring for others because we belong to the loving Father. Doesn't mean we won't suffer. Doesn't mean we won't hurt or be humiliated in this broken world. After all, we are not only called to believe in Jesus, but to suffer with him. But like Jesus, we entrust ourselves to the Father who calls us his own sons and daughters. Now, the inverse of this is that if you are hurting and struggling right now, humility means asking for help and letting God's people demonstrate his care. So do not assume that people can see your need or that they should already see and should come to you. Right? There's the maxim, we don't know what we're not told. Right? More often than not, I think we're also afraid to assume that people need help. So share, let us attend to Jesus with you, remind you of God's love, as well as demonstrate care for your needs. Now, last one I have is embrace the things that humble you. Now, over and over again, uh, you keep finding this throughout the writings of old dead Christians. And I'm still wrestling with what it means, but I'm pretty sure it does not mean shaming or hating yourself. Instead, it's accepting the things that remind you of your dependence on God and that we are not as important in this world as we like to be, such as probably what the Seahawks are going to find when they play today. <laughs> <sighs> so a, a simple example from my own life. A couple of years ago, I found out within the span of a month, um, and I probably actually knew this earlier, but that I was diabetic and allergic to uh, dairy and eggs. And so all of a sudden, my diet changed dramatically. No sugar, no milk, no eggs. Now, my wife has done a fantastic job of making sure I eat food that is actually enjoyable. I got scones and brownies this week. Uh, but honestly, losing those three things has been rather frustrating because all the best dishes that I can think of right now include one of sugar, milk, or eggs. However, this has also been an opportunity for me, for me to realize that life is more than food. And it's also helped me better understand and care for the many people who do have food allergies, especially my students. And it's helped me take my eyes off myself and actually be equipped to care for others. Now, another quick dumb example, uh, which many people in this room are blessed with and many more will be blessed with in the future, and that is being bald. Now, I make no joke when I say that pretty much every Wednesday, including last Wednesday, my students remind me that I'm bald. And thankfully, I have made peace with it many years ago. But it is another reminder that I am not as impressive as I would like to look, or that I uh, lack swag, or can't mog, or whatever one-syllable words that teens use today. And that is actually a good thing, that I can rejoice in that. Life is more than hair. I am not God. I'm still valued by him. I'm still loved. So I don't know if any of that made sense. So here's another line from Andrew Murray. The cross, death, and the grave into which Jesus humbled himself were his path to the glory of God. And they're our path too. Let humility be our one desire and our fervent prayer. Let us gladly accept whatever humbles us before God or people. This alone is the path to the glory of God. 
So like that small church in Philippi, humility is the mindset that will carry us through. Humility is important. We're not only told to do it through the Bible, but ultimately we see it in Jesus as both God and human. Uh, Humility, in contrast to hating ourselves or having low self-esteem or whatnot, is about letting God be God, letting him be both the Lord and the one who loves us. And so we need him. And simply because of who he is, he actually wants us. So let's go to him fully, openly, humbly, but with all confidence. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, dependent on your humility, that your desire to care for our needs, to send your son to become human, to die for us. It makes no sense how much you love us and how far you're willing to go and the life that you've called us to. But help us to experience that more and more this week. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.